and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. Series 8, Session 9. It's Thursday, the 24th of March, 2022. Welcome back. This session's titled uh, Pandemic Recovery and Communicable Disease Resilience. And I'd like to begin by making acknowledgement to the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. Uh, we recognise their diversity, resilience and the ongoing place that First Nations peoples hold in our communities. We pay respects to elders past and present, commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. And we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. All right, well, as case numbers have been decreasing and things seem manageable on the COVID care front, primary care is confronted with the business of returning to business as usual care models, to consider catch-up care and to prepare for the flu season. As an ECHO team and as a Westwick team, we're seeking to meet these requests with some energy, but at the same time, we're mindful and need to defend the needs and state of our workforce at this time. And in primary care, we have been frontline workers. So what have we been? We've been frontline workers in a health crisis. We've rallied time and time again for our community despite the challenges and the odds and the brutal fatigue and the charged emotions so we've been sitting there on on the red disaster management as a workforce we're moving from disaster response to disaster recovery but as we hear news of japanese encephalitis and influenza and omicron ba2 and now i believe there's a delta cron uh, we wonder what's going on for you you know when you what are your fears what are we are we confronting do you, is it making you think are we confronting another cycle of reactive survival as we look ahead um to another winter or are we are we ready to begin proactively preparing you know what does a sustainable response look like and what does resilience even mean in this context these are some of the concepts that I've been puzzling over the last few weeks as we prepare for whatever the next stage of whatever it is that we're currently in Parents and grandparents will know how the story goes. When you're going on a bear hunt, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you have to go through it. So what does going through this next stage look like? Well, according to the UN Disaster Strategy, and I'm just guessing here, I'm just looking for frameworks. I love a good framework. According to the UN Disaster Risk Reduction Strategy, moving from disaster response to disaster preparedness involves a risk-informed systems-based approach to decision-making. It sounds like fancy high-level stuff. So let's see how it could be applied on the ground and what this could mean for primary care. So according to the Sendai Risk Reduction Framework, which has been taken up by our national government in recovery planning, there are four priorities. And these are what they are. They're understand disaster risk, accountable decision-making, enhanced investment in reduction for resilience. This is kind of looking at, I guess, risk reduction, yeah. Governance, ownership and responsibility, um, but enhancing disaster preparedness for effective response or build back better in recovery, rehabilitation, reconstruction is action four. Um, and that's part of another framework. Now, this is all policy stuff, how this kind of relates. Well, I think we've got to think about it in our own communities, really. So let's start with the community focus. We'll go to the next slide. So a definition of disaster risk, uh, and check this, you know, for coherence with your last two years experience, and let's compare it to the flooding in, in Lismore. Disaster risk is recognised as the consequence of the interaction between a hazard and the characteristics that make people and places vulnerable and exposed. So risk is a combination of the severity and frequency of a hazard or hazards. And I think we're now framing this as we've been thinking about the COVID hazard, but now we're thinking about those multi-hazards. We're looking at different variants, flu, other, other communicable diseases. So hazards, uh, exposure, so the number of people and assets exposed to the hazard, and then vulnerability. So their vulnerability to damage. And, and I think where ECHO fits in, if you look back at, I look back at those frameworks, this is around the, the knowledge sharing and building and practice that we can kind of promote through ECHO around 
um, you know, understanding this and implementing those grounded strategies around this framework. Um, that's kind of, I think, what, what we can do and what we, what we have in our resilience building toolkit. So I'm always checking that, you know, what we're doing and the time that you're investing is, um, is really going forward to build resilience. So, you know, this is me just uh, kind of thinking about this. So as we approach the two-year anniversary of the COVID pandemic response echo, I'm drafting some revitalised aims. We'll go to the next slide that seek to move us forward into our response of resilience. So, oh, you know all this, this is it. So really these, uh, go back, uh, no, yeah, that's all right, the next one. Um, really these aims uh, were drafted. Um, so if you go to the next, move forward, maybe there's a delay. Yeah, that's it, learning outcomes, learning outcomes. No, back one, beautiful, yeah. Um, really these aims, you know, you've been seeing these, we've been whipping through them, but these were designed by Deb Friedman and myself and the ECHO team two years ago next week, um, really. This is where we were looking at kind of pitching this series. We added vaccines in, in 2021. But I think we're now we're going to think about going forward, you know, is it just SARS-CoV-2 or we think about communicable diseases management, evaluation of really it's all respiratory symptoms and fevers now in primary care, not really, it's, it's how do we manage the, the combination of those, those hazards and thinking about personal protective equipment and, and site and that hazard triangle we talked about. Continuing care in the face of all of this and what's changed and will we go back and what will those new models be looking like going forward? And um, communicable diseases prevention, well, that is vaccines, but like more broadly, there's all of those raft of prevention strategies. So in our coming sessions, we'll consider how to embed communicable diseases resilience into the work we do day to day in primary care. What does a strong and resilient primary care response need to look like? What needs to change to support this work? What are our priority actions that we would like to implement now in the short and medium terms? So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, facilitating today's meeting alongside the ECHO team, um, Whitney, Gemma, and um, thanks to Zach. Nice to see you this morning. Thanks everyone for introducing yourself in the chat, for zooming in from the Westwick regions and anyone observing from outside. Um, and I think that's probably, it. we'll just whip through the last bits of my slides, Whitney, thank you. Um, yes, what have we got on this morning? So Kate Graham's with us. Um, she'll pick up on that risk framework and think about what uh, some of the ways we might implement that thinking into our practice um, and cover off on any updates and guidelines. And we welcome Dr. Rachel Cowan, who's going to um, talk to us about Omicron. And are you going to do flu as well, Rachel? We're just Omicron. Just Omicron. Beautiful. Learning from COVID pandemic to consider our approach to communicable diseases in primary care. Um, we'll, we'll see what's in the box there. Um, thank you and welcome to Dr. Eileen Cole, who's bringing a case. And Eileen, you saved Echo this week. I was feeling a little tired come Tuesday and thinking, oh, what are we, what are we going to do? And then I saw your case in the box. So I do really appreciate it. Thank you, Eileen. So we'll throw to you um, to present your case in a little bit and open up case discussion. Thank you. And um, Naomi White from... Um, uh, West Vic PHN, she's the COVID positive pathways manager. She'll be bringing us a PHN update as well as being on panel for discussion. Case vignettes, for cases for next series. Um, what are we going to discuss? I think, did we, do we have a poll feed? Did Katrina make up, whip up a poll for us? I did make a little uh, menu of options, guys. So have a quick squeeze. And um, if you could throw in the chat the things that are twigging your interest, um, do that now for me. And I don't know if um, how fancy Whitney, you and Fee feel, but if we could whip up a poll, we could, um, that'd be a nice way to survey people to see um, what they want to do. But we will ask you again next week. 
all right and do make sure you fill in the evaluation because that's the other place where you could let me know what you want to cover in our next series um as far as topics like heart and lung if you guys send me a case of something that relates to cardiac i'll bring you a cardiologist but i'm not going to go and hit up a cardiologist if i don't have a case so that's how it'll work lung or chronic fatigue if you want to do long covid if i see a case of long covid I'll get the presenter for you. So I won't respond to specific topics without a case because I think um, they they deserve cases. Otherwise, we can go broad. Um, I think the other thing, though, I am wanting to think about is responding to um, the, the mental health burden, I guess, at the moment. And I'm thinking about that not only from a um, classic clinical case um, perspective, but also, you know, I think differentiating what is normal pandemic and crisis response to stress that we need to be careful not to um, medicalize or pathologize and not to drive mental health referrals so how do we help uh, really at the head with um, those basic recovery uh, and resilience um, management pieces in primary care what can we direct what resources supports and um, you know things can we direct people to um, at, the, at the point of um, primary care um, to try to prevent those those longer term impacts uh, so again if that's of interest I think that very much relates to our COVID topics so let me know if you're happy for us to you know think about mental health topics as well all right so over to you Kate morning everyone so um I thought that we'd expand a little bit in terms of the COVID risk and communicable diseases risk more broadly um just as we're getting more evidence through um as we analyze some of the research from last year and particularly from the Omicron wave earlier in this year and we know that in terms of hazards they're pretty clearly defined as the viruses but um, particularly for COVID, we know that the vulnerabilities are not necessarily um, the medical vulnerabilities. They're vulnerabilities that hit across the communities. They're things that we know about already that make people vulnerable in terms of other health conditions as well. So you've got crowded housing um, conditions. You've got employment um, that puts people into casual employment. So low socioeconomic status and income issues. Um, people who are attending indoor venues for more than three times a week. And that also then relates back to your employment. If you're in an employment that requires you to attend and you are mandated to attend in person and you can't work from home, those are all things that are putting people more at risk. Um, and so looking then at other vulnerability factors that sort of in a way overlap with your exposure factors, you've got your vaccination status, which we know is that's a modifiable um, vulnerability factor. Education level, as GPs, we can't do much about sort of overall education level, uh, but what we can do is educate about um, infection, about risk, about how we actually manage and identify disease immunosuppression and what I wanted to flag as well is the other medical conditions increasing the risk of severe disease because when you're looking at a framework like this you want to look at where what you can change as a GP so when you're looking at sort of changing people's risk factors or identifying people's risk factors that are changeable we can change the vaccination but we can also target other medical conditions. So we've been really quite single disease focused for much of the past two years. And I wanted to really encourage people to expand their thought patterns around other diseases 
and how we look at preventing or um, modifying and maximising mm -hmm. treatment options for lots of the diseases that increase risk of severe outcomes from COVID. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. So today is sort of, I really wanted to focus people's thoughts onto residential aged care, because we know at the start of the pandemic, this was a real um, sort of focus of our population as a priority population, because we knew that as you get older, you're at increased risk of severe outcomes. And this is something that has sort of continued through Omicron, um, although we're not seeing sort of the significant death rates that we were seeing um, during Delta and indeed through the original sort of 2020 waves, we are still seeing deaths in residential aged care and in people who are over the age of sort of 80 and 90 as a result of COVID infections. So what we wanted to sort of think about is what our work in aged care does involve. Um, so it's sort of how we can build up resilience within our aged care populations through our prevention work and really value that because often it's sort of something that got put off or deferred as that non-essential care. Um, and as we sort of think about their individual level and how we can move back to sort of that catch-up care, I wanted to really encourage that moving forward to thinking about prevention and forward-thinking care as something essential in terms of that COVID management. Um, so this week is National Advanced Care Planning Week, um, and that was something that sort of did get deferred a lot um, throughout the pandemic because it is a difficult conversation to have with families when you're not seeing them regularly. It's a difficult conversation to have with individuals, um, but it is something that's essential. Uh, and I'd really encourage using the resources that are out there. We've got great health pathways on that. Um, Barwon did a lot of work on this with us originally. Um, so there's lots you can do out there if that's not something that you've um, been familiar with. So vaccinations are obviously something that we do sort of put a lot of effort into, but thinking about the other vaccinations for aged care as well, how we fit in the influenza vaccinations, making sure that everyone is um, vaccinated for Pneumovax, using the AIR to sort of check vaccination status on entry to aged care. Um, and then really sort of valuing that prevention work that we do because often it does feel like it's something extra in your week. And I think that people have been reaching a point of burnout with all the demands that have been placed on primary care. And so one of the ways to sort of readdress the way that you actually think about the work when there's that time demand on you or that pressure or feeling like things are an additional pressure is actually just reframing that moment and thinking about it as something of extreme value that you are doing at that point in time um, and sort of thinking of that as it is a time saver um, and making that time within the day, prioritising that time for aged care in the same way that you'll be prioritising other work within your day, but just actually taking the time to think about how you can create space within your busy working lives um, to get back into some of this aged care work. And then on a facility level, um, there's really a lot that um, is coming back into place now and how we can actually assist um, with that. 
is actually looking at sort of how our telehealth setups are in place there. So making sure that, um, you know, facilities are supported to be able to use effective telehealth, what they're actually able to do with that telehealth. Are the nurses sort of really sort of able to give you good clinical information at that point in time? Um, what that setup is with the specialists? What allied health is coming back now? Um, and who else is visiting the facility? How can you work together as a team? Um, there was a good article this week um, that was just in the ABC News that was about the number of aged care residents dying without COVID um, over Omicron. And I think looking at the number of non-COVID deaths um, and sort of that excess death rate across our society as a whole is something that's really important to consider when we've been putting so much focus into COVID uh, because we have had an increase in non-COVID deaths. Some of that may be mitigated by the fact that there was an initial drop in non-COVID deaths in 2020, potentially because we were keeping out all other infectious diseases because everything was shut down and locked out. Um, but it is something to think about. Um, but really benchmarking that care, that good residential aged care is good care for everyone. And when you're thinking about this residential aged care framework piece, where you're thinking about all the things that um, you would like for gold standard care for a patient in aged care, it really is something that, you know, for individual patients, um, it's really important to get back to. So I think I'll go on to the next slide. So vaccinations, um, I think another group, um, we have the five to 11 year olds who many of them are now, sorry, I'm having an interruption by a four year old who is not eligible for a vaccination yet. Uh, many of the five to 11 year olds are now eligible for a second shot. The state government's doing a lot of work there with um, phoning um, people who are due for that second shot, making sure that they've got bookings, um, but making sure as well that we can help with that, that opportunistic vaccination, if we can book in families together, making things easier um, and looking as well within practices at maybe doing that AIR data audit, seeing who isn't vaccinated and the practice facilitation team can be really helpful with um, that for you and looking at some um, ways that that can make, be made easier to access that data. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So the National COVID um, Clinical Evidence Task Force um, has some really good stuff now on the risk classification tool for adults with mild COVID-19 and who's at highest risk of severe illness, breaking people up into different um, population risk factors, immunocompromised status, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with or without comorbidities, vaccination status, up-to-date, not up-to-date or unvaccinated. And taking it across in terms of your age, where you fit. And so thinking about individuals, when you've got an individual in front of you, what's their risk? How do we get back to thinking about that individual in front of us and how we have those discussions? And this can be a really helpful tool for having some of those um, challenging discussions about booster vaccinations for people. So next slide, please. Um, Japanese encephalitis, um, there's the JE vaccination um, Westwick webpage now that has a lot of the information there. 
but um, any interested practices or questions, just reach out to the um, team at Westwick PHN. But um, there's also the health pathways are available with lots of the information updated on there. So we'll just go on to the next slide. So there's all the health pathways are updated. Um, wanted to flag as well the residential aged care COVID health pathway um, and also the residential aged care and um, advanced care planning ones are really, there's a lot of great information out there. So I'll just go on to the next slide. And that is all for me today. <laughs> all right, great. Thanks, Kate. Um, well, look, good morning, everyone. I haven't seen any questions come through from Kate in the chat, but if you do want to ask Kate questions, please do send them through. And of course, she'll be here for the session. Um, over to you, Rachel. Excellent. Now, Rachel, do you mind? I've I've introduced you as um, I've introduced you as head of ID at Ballarat Health Services, but you've also got another role which others might not be aware of. Did you want to just give us a little bit about what's been happening in your world uh, professionally in the last little while? Just give us a quick rundown yeah. of your roles. Yeah, so I um, very sadly left uh, Barwon Health uh, about four or five months ago and took up a position at the Northern Hospital in Melbourne. Um, trying to simplify my life. Um, but uh, as part of that, I've actually taken on some uh, work at the Northeastern Public Health Unit as well. So uh, joining the team there. So I can't see the chat at the moment. So thanks very much again for having us. I just thought I'd start at the beginning because I just thought that was a really interesting thing. So this is a snapshot of cases for COVID when I first started talking about COVID and that was on the 6th of February was my first sort of grand round around that as well. And um, what we can say is that, you know, 24,000 cases, that's all fine. It's all predominantly in China. And this is from um, last night. Uh, and we've now got 474 million cases of COVID. Interestingly, they're also, the John Hopkins are also putting up, a, you know, how many vaccination doses have actually been administered. And um, there's almost 11 billion doses. So we're pretty good on sort of knowing what the, the safety signals and stuff around that are now. So uh, safe, efficacious, we should be all vaccinated. Um, I just thought I'd also put this up a slide as well, because I think interestingly, what's actually happening is we're seeing that sort of peak of Omicron here and everything, it was a very short, sharp peak. Uh, significant number of cases has now been dropping down and we're getting this secondary blip, which is probably gonna be related to the BA2 variant. So what's happening in Victoria? What we can see is the Grampian region seven day rolling average is 255. So it's still not, a a small amount of people that are getting infected, but it is slowly going down sort of by 10% per week. Um, but it's a it's a very slow sort of very rapid upswing and then slow uh, downswing. I suppose the concerning thing that we're seeing across all of the states, especially in New South Wales at the moment, is that we're seeing that peak, but we're all starting to see that little uptick as well uh, in Australia or oh, at least in Victoria as well. Um, uh, and we think that's probably related to the overall increase of the BA2 variant of Omicron. So just going into that, if we're actually looking at Omicron, um, what we can see is that this is BA1, BA2. There are some mutations in the receptor binding zone. Um, it does seem to look make 
it more um, a stronger uh, a stronger affinity for the receptor and thus making it more in, uh, infectious. Um, and there are some other more deletions as well. So it's it, it's kind of like handing on the baton from BA1 to BA2. Um, we know that Omicron is, is worldwide is 99% of infections. It really has bumped Delta off its perch. There are actually three BA um, lineages and BA3 uh, we haven't really seen at all, but this is not an unusual thing in, in the setting of viruses. It's an RNA virus. There's going to be mutations. There's no way to fix it's any mutations that it has, like we do we see with DNA. So we know that there's going to be uh, multiple lineages uh, coming across. There is the Deltacron uh, thing that everybody is worried about at the moment, and it looks like it's got the Omicron spike and the rest of it Delta. But as to whether that's going to be clinically significant or not, we're going to just keep getting variants. But we'll discuss that later. BA2 is rapidly taking over BA1, and we know that it's about 30% in the UK cases and about 50% of the US cases are now uh, BA2. What we do know thus far is the clinical severity seems to be very similar to the first uh, Omicron variant. It is more infectious, about 1.4 times more infectious and about 4.2 times more than the Delta. And a lot of that is also around the serial, serial interval. So that's the, the way the next person that gets infected without any measures put in place, no infection control measures or anything. And originally when we were looking at the alpha variant, it was about seven days. Um, and then that's progressively shortened, which is actually a natural progression of viral illness um, in terms of a virus developing, is that you'll get more inf infectivity, but as a result, you'll actually get it as a less severe illness, which is what we're seeing with Omicron, because we're not seeing those cases in ICU and we're not seeing those, uh, the volume being hospitalised. It's about 3% of people that are currently being hospitalised with Omicron. A lot of that's also going to be uh, reduced significantly due to the power of vaccination as well. As I said, it's got to increase ACE2, ACE2 binding affinity. Um, it's got a slightly higher attack rate. So depending on which study you look at in terms of household secondary attack rate, going from 11% to 14% or 29% to 39%, depending on which country you're actually looking at. Um, so about 30% uh, increased attack rate. Um, and a higher risk of transmission from a primary unvaccinated person uh, to a secondary uh, uh, second person. And infection with Omicron, if you've been infected with BA1, it's more likely that you're unlikely to be infected with BA2 and vice versa. It's not unheard of. And this is part of the reason why that infectivity sort of time in terms of not testing and not worrying about someone having a secondary infection or a secondary infection with COVID particularly uh, has been expanded recently in the last uh, week uh, to 60 days. So originally it was, I think, uh, three months in the setting of Delta, got shortened right back down when Omicron came in because we knew that people could get, uh, get Omicron as well. Uh, and so we're shortened to 30 days and now we're expanding that back out again. And, and it seems to be protective BA1 and BA2. Um, as far as susceptibility of vaccination, there's no, the, the data suggests that there's no reduction in susceptibility to vaccination. 
um, susceptibility in a monoclonal antibody treatment. So we know that uh, citrovimab uh, has lost its neutralization ability against BA2, even though it works against BA1. And interestingly, Ronaprev, which we don't really have any access to at the moment, uh, just in terms of stock, doesn't work against BA1, but it does work against BA2, which is interesting. And then there's a new kit on the block, Evishield, Evishield um, which is Tixagevimab and Silagivimab. Uh, apparently you're supposed to say it with an American accent and you'll get through. Um, and that's why everybody's using trade names. Uh, I'll discuss that shortly. And as far as susceptibility to the other antiviral medications, thankfully we know that both subvariants are equally uh, affected by remdesivir, molnupiravir and um, um, nermotrelivir, ritonavir combination. So Edisheld, um, it's two long-acting monoclonal antibodies that are direct, both directed to the spike protein. They're given by two separate sequential injections um, and they were TGA approved on the 24th of February for pre-exposure prophylaxis for COVID, which is very interesting. They're specifically going to be for people with moderate to severe immunocompromise, uh, either from a, a specific disease, like lymphoma, leukemia, et cetera, or they're actually on disease-monifying agents or immunosuppressants. Exactly what those ones are, we're yet to find out. Um, and for whom vaccination is not recommended due, due to a history of severe adverse reaction. I don't think anybody's really going to fall into that because the two choices we have are mRNA vaccination or a standard protein adjuvant combination with the Novavax that is now available. Um, but it does maintain efficacy against both Omicron variants at the moment, which we know about. Um, so we haven't, oh, that meant to say word, not work, uh, word finding difficulties, uh, but watch this space. So my thoughts on the future, it's, it's, it's a little bit complex. I think we are all completely over COVID. Uh, I know I am two years as a hard slog and looking, facing down the barrel of a third year in combination with influenza is going to be really, really challenging. I think the fact that everybody's out and about is going to be difficult for everybody to manage and it's specifically going to be really difficult for you guys to manage as well. And that level of expectation and respiratory viruses, um, we, we know that there are a lot of people out there that are COVID negative and are getting standard respiratory viruses and it's almost like a surprise that it's, oh shit, it's not COVID. Oh, there are other respiratory viruses out there. Oh my God. Um, other variants and whether it's concerned, there's always going to be other variants and it's always going to be an initial panic around that. Um, I think it's trying not to get overwhelmed each time you hear that there's a new variant and just go, right, let's just see how this pans out and we see where this, where this actually goes. Um, unfortunately, citrovimab's uh, availability is incredibly low at the moment. It's very, uh, we have very limited doses and there's a national, uh, a national supply shortage. So being really judicious around its use because we know that it's second line behind Paxlovid. Um, red, there is a resurrection of remdesivir. Previously, it had only been used for inpatient use, but we're actually seeing that uh, the recommendations are now for its use in an outpatient setting in, term, in terms of prevention of severe disease and hospitalisation. But the problem is, is that it's still IV, um, 
it's still an IV dose uh, and requires three days of administration. So certainly at BHS at the moment, and I'm sure at Bowen Health uh, and every other hospital, we're trying to work out exactly how to fit this in and the way to manage that um, administration as well. So it's a RNA polymerase inhibitor. Um, and so it prevents uh, replication of the, the virus, uh, but it was one that we've just been using in the hospital. Um, and the difficulty is, is that at the moment, um, ED is actually already breaking. We're already seeing because there's, and I know I'm preaching to the converted, I know you guys are incredibly engaged, but there's a lot of GPs out there that are still not seeing people with respiratory illness. This is what I'm hearing anecdotally. Um, and I don't know how we can bring people along to make them less scared of seeing their own patients. Um, the problem is, is at the moment, unofficially sort of 20 to 25% of people are leaving ED without being seen because they're not being seen by their GP. So they're turning up the emergency department and they're actually leaving um, because they're not actually being seen. So these people are, aren't actually accessing any healthcare at all uh, and are getting sicker and sicker. And we certainly know that the data is showing that people are turning up with more chronic illnesses, cancers, that kind of stuff, because they're not attending the GP because there's a concern around attending healthcare from a patient perspective as well. The other thing is, is that what do we do in the future around the respiratory virus? Well, I think a combination respiratory multiplex PCR would be really useful. So you know that it's not COVID and you know which other viral illness it is um, or influenza even. Um, the issue is though, is that um, uh, the COVID centres can't take other viral uh, swabs. They can only do COVID. So how do we fit this in? I, I'm really unsure. Um, and, oh, I don't know what's happened with my slides. Um, but the, basically the key is vaccination. So just looking at the uptake, I'll make this very quick. It's really about getting the third dose in and getting people uh, vaccinated. I know that um, Rampion's Health are doing an amazing job um, and their rates are up around, I think, 65%. Um, and also getting that second dose into the five to 11 year olds as well. Um, because this is what happens when you don't have vaccination. So. This is Hong Kong right up until the end of the year where we've had a few spikes and stuff. Seven day rolling average of 120, 60,000 rolling day average currently at the moment, which is why everybody's in a world of hurt. And a lot of that is because um, there is, has been a lack of vaccination and a lack of uptake of vaccination and especially in the elderly population and the um, and the, um, the vulnerable population. And that's really been what the key is, is that vaccination is the key. So I would encourage you to make sure everybody gets their third shot as well. Um, and thank you very much. That's all I've got to say. Thanks so much, Rachel. Um, there's a couple of questions that are coming through in the chat. So Penny Scott, um, uh, are our PCR tests able to distinguish between variants? So she had a sick nine-month-old in emergency with bronchiolitis who had COVID three weeks prior, poor little thing. And the advice was to retest for COVID in case it was a different variant, which I found interesting, might only apply in hospital. Yeah, no. So there is, so they can't tell between the difference between the variants at all. Um, and it's something that actually happens. So what's happening is that a proportion of those positive cases are getting sequenced um, 
in order to work out exactly which variant it is just from a public health epidemiological interest in terms of the, the volume that we have in the population. The thing being is that we shouldn't be retesting anyone uh, within 60 days of their re original release from isolation because they may well test positive. So the bronchiolitis is not, would not in that case be of being related to the COVID that they had three weeks previously. Mm -hmm. um, Jane Goddard. Can I ask a question about yeah, that? Because that's, that is something that we sort of do have, there's, there isn't clear guidance sort of within the department on that. While, while you shouldn't retest people, it's that sort of um, symptomatic individual who may have tested originally positive on a rapid antigen test, I think is where we're getting some issues. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, because, yeah. Because of the thought that that rapid antigen test may have originally been a false positive, uh, particularly if there were minimal symptoms with an original illness, um, are, yeah. it, are they yes. people who you may still recommend yes, yes. a PCR? Absolutely. If you've been diagnosed on a rapid antigen test previously and you are asymptomatic, uh, then I certainly would be testing for COVID in that situation. We know that rapid antigen tests, the fact that we've gone to use them as a diagnostic tool is making my head hurt. Um, it should never have been used as a diagnostic tool. And I think it's because we were in such deep poo, trying not to swear, um, uh, in such trouble when we were we needed real good access or real good turnaround with a PCR that they've actually brought in the rapid antigen test. And I, the problem is, especially when we've got like a low background prevalence in the community, there's a much higher incidence of having a false rat, false positive rat. So if anybody gets a positive rat and they're asymptomatic, then I would be getting a PCR to confirm that. And also in the reverse, if they are asymptomatic, uh, sorry, if they're symptomatic and have a, a negative rat, I would actually get them to go and get a PCR as well. And that's what we're doing in the hospital too, because you can get a false negative too. So in that setting where you've had someone previously diagnosed on a rat, mild illness may or may not have been COVID and they are coming in sick, then I would definitely retest them and would be testing them with a PCR in that setting with the, with the presumption, especially if they were previously asymptomatic rat, that they could that could very well be COVID. Okay, and I thanks. think as well, given that the um, information on the Department of Health website for people says if you've had um, a contact <clears throat> and you've tested positive for on a rat, you don't need to have that PCR. I think given that everyone has contacts pretty much at the moment, um, there is still that thought that I think if anyone was asymptomatic with or without a contact um, but came in symptomatic with a second illness, it may still be worthwhile sort of taking that history back um, and getting that public health advice if you're not sure. Absolutely. Um, and then if you do get that second PCR and it comes back as positive, that PCR can then have a look at the CT values. Yeah. And if the CT values are really low, we'll sort of say, you know, yeah, this looks historic. It's not really oh, it's, Yeah, it's actually us. the other way around. If it's if it's low and less than 30. I mean, yeah, if it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, yeah, if it's high. <laughs> if it's really it's high. It's too early in the morning for me to think. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's that, okay. So Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> What I want to do is I want to move on to Eileen's case, but I'm just thinking, let's scoop all this up. Jane Goddard, have we answered your question, which is very similar? Within eight weeks, is PCR appropriate? Any value in rat along with the respiratory panel? Are you happy that we've answered that? 
Yeah. Okay. And so um, I just want to let everyone know, and Kate, um, Kate, that you've got time because we're going to come back and do this very topic next week. So we've got non-methobia coming next week to talk about testing. We'll be going back to Lee Meakin's case of serology. So Lee, I think this is where we're going to put to like answer those questions about the serology and your 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 chap. Um, we've got a, a case from Peter Atkinson about um, testing like false positive rats. So let's get right into the rat as a diagnostic test versus PCR. Let's look at respiratory panels and look at. We'll talk about CT values then we'll we'll spend a whole session on it but that's great to answer those questions this morning thanks so much rachel well that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning we won't bring you the recording of the case discussion but come along and join the discussion next week we'll leave it this morning with the phn update so just a little update from me um the department of jobs uh, have programs for helping you set up your COVID safe plans. Um, so there's another one running tonight and Tuesday you can register for and there's some ongoing from there. Uh, a small reminder of the GPRC's access. Um, and like we said with the previous case that they have access to, um, there's an, not an issue with people who don't have Medicare for billing. So it's a, a streamlined run um, and a GP available. Uh, a reminder of the living with COVID funding. So this again, this case falls into um, a client who would be eligible uh, if you needed to go and see them uh, for, for their care. It does not have to be specifically for the management of the COVID. You may actually choose to go and see this person because they're at risk of other things uh, and a face-to-face -face consult might help them um, keep themselves safe or those around them safe uh, and other things ongoing from that. Uh, we did get... Um, we're expecting an announcement on fourth doses um, this week uh, for immunocompromised, those over the age of 60 or 65 years and older, Aboriginal Torres Strait Island people 50 years and older, um, people living in residential aged care and people living in disability uh, residential services. So we're expecting that announcement this week. Uh, so those are the clients that we're looking to prepare for, for giving the fourth dose to, uh, with an encouragement that we would be um, would be giving the flu vax concurrently at the same time to the individuals, um, as well as looking to making winter plans for the, for the area. There is access for the Molnupiravir um, in our region. So if you're in Geelong, um, Cardinia Health Pharmacy has access um, to on, on the shelf and UFS Pharmacy, Danny will put it in chat because I can't remember which pharmacy um, has it on the shelf there as well if you're looking to send a client uh, directly to get it. So thank you to, to both of those organisations that have, because um, it's a cost to have it sitting on the shelf um, there for them, uh, providing it to have access so that, that when we need it, it's available quite quickly. Um, and I believe there's access at one of the pharmacies in Horsham as well. Um, everybody else and can get access within 24 hours. Four and, just well. and just reiterating that you can give both vaccines at the same time, that's fine. Um, previously, it was just because we didn't want to confuse symptoms of uh, vaccination with COVID with flu vaccine because we didn't know really what was going to happen with the COVID vaccines. Uh, now that we have a better idea of exactly how people are affected, giving it wasn't that it was never that they were interacting with each other monitoring of side effects thank you that's Rachel. clear that's good yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then lastly, uh, it's been mentioned a few times, but please get onto Health Pathways. It has been updated over the last couple of weeks. There is a wealth of access there. If you're worried about how to get access to antivirals or who to talk to at your local health service, it is all on uh, the referrals and escalation page. There has been updates to um, the assessment and management page, as well as there's been updates. Um, there is now a Japanese encephalitis page that's been updated as well. So I know that's forefront of people's minds. Um, and we now have a web page at um, the WVPHN uh, dedicated to Japanese encephalitis um, information for you. So it's under immunization in the health professional section. Um, otherwise I've put a slide up here for things you can click on when you're at home. Great. Okay, thanks Naomi. All right, um, so Shine a Light Awards, nominations open. Nominate a pay, practice manager or practice nurse in your practice who you think de demonstrated exceptional leadership. Um, it's time now to, uh, you know, I think fill everyone's cup as we're heading into the next place and value our work, uh, work colleagues. So um, jump on there. It's closing this week. So grab, scan that. And we'll also put the link in the chat as well. So um, it's nice to be nominated um, and I think it's uh, really lovely to re-energize our colleagues. Next slide. And then um, I'm going to stick up the evaluation. Oh, no, case study. Jump on this. Hopefully, Eileen inspired you. That's exactly what we're after. And you saw how great it was to have a case because, and we really um, uh, learned so much out of it. So if you've got something to share, um, whether it's really uh, complex or whether it's uh, fairly simple, that's what we wanted echo. So send us that. Um, and then the next bit is um, evaluation. So at the top, you can evaluate this session. Down the bottom, evaluate the whole series. So um, I guess I'm particularly interested in the end of series evaluation. If you're only going to do one, jump on that one and um, be sure to pop in uh, a, a request for what you'd like next series because that's what I'll be busy doing. We'll be busy doing next week is starting to think about what's happening next term um and we've got one more session that's next week um and then we're going to take a bit of a break in fact i think we're going to take about a month off so we've got plenty of time and uh certainly knocking on the door to have echo back will be sending us cases um and and inspiring us um which you guys do uh, I think that's it. This is how we communicate with you. Go back and listen to podcasts, watch um, didactics you've missed. Everything's now, um, I think it's all happening on video. Um, so there's lots of ways to catch up. Share it with a friend if you think Echo has been good. Um, let friends know about it. We're really pleased that there's so many of us coming, still about 50 each week. Um, but do let people know about it. We're still keen to promote. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Rachel. And there's um, probably a bit I'm going to scoop up in the chat of conversations that were happening afterwards. Um, and, and maybe we can come and bring that forward in a session in the future. Um, thank Thanks so much again, Eileen, um, Kate, and Ovi. Thanks to your team and thanks to all of you guys. Have a good week and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.